0: We are uh, in uh, our first Sunday of the month, we are in a study of Ecclesiastes. Throughout the regular course of the month, we're going through the book of John, but right now, our first week, we'll be back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. One of the refrains uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes is that there's nothing new under the sun, and that keeps getting proven over and over and over again, and it's going to happen again today. Would I, uh, can I ask you to please stand one more time, out of respect for the reading of God's word, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. Or faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, For he does not know what is to be or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the blessing that is always in it, sometimes on the surface, sometimes right below it, Lord. And so we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've been reading a new book called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. Uh, super popular, anticipated book about. Uh, it's called the Benedict Option: A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian World. The book is all about what do, What do we do now that uh, the that we, the public that, that the world is no longer even sympathetic towards the Christian faith? Uh, he starts this, the new book with this. Uh, he gives the story. He's from Louisiana. He's from he's from the South, and he gives the story of the great flood that hit Louisiana in August of 2016. It was a, a storm that came in that was uh, predicted to be three to six inches of rain, ended up being over 30, over 30 inches of rain, and it, it, it put Baton Rouge underwater. And he was working in the resource, uh, you know, he was working in relief efforts, and people were coming in from everywhere, black, white, rich, poor, everybody was coming in, Everybody had been flooded. Nobody was prepared uh, because no one had ever seen anything like this before. No one had flood insurance because Baton Rouge had never been underwater. It was, it was, it was, no one had ever seen this since long before settlers came to the New World. It was the once-in-a-thousand-year flood. And then he transfers that into this, into this. Then he says this next. We Christians in the West are facing our own thousand-year flood Or if you believe Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, a 1,500-year flood. In 2012, the then pontiff said that the spiritual crisis overtaking the West is most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire near the end of the 5th century. The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the West. There are people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. By God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish in the global south and China, but barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, it will all but disappear entirely from Europe and North America. This may not be the end of the world, but it is the end of a world, and only the willfully blind would deny it. For a long time, we have downplayed or ignored the signs, and now the floodwaters are upon us, and we are not ready." He's making the case that the church does not have flood insurance. Now, maybe that's too dire a prediction. Maybe it's too pessimistic. Uh, But it's a common and a popular uh, thought right now as we see what's happening in the culture and what's happening in, in government. There's another Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput. He has written a book called Strangers in a Strange Land. Us, that's us. And there's a lot of truth to that. I love how Dreyer's book puts together in these opening pages, he brings together the different earthly powers that we're all subjected to, not just the powers of a hostile government, but also the powers of nature that no one, not even kings, get to escape. He is trying, Rod Dreyer is trying his best he can to give us wisdom. Wisdom comes in many forms. He's trying to give us the wisdom both of warning That we are now under hostile forces, but also the wisdom of promise, that there's a way to flourish in it. And in a similar way, Solomon here does the same thing, but he does Dreher even one better. Solomon says, of the wisdom of warning, yes, we need to rightly assess our place in the world. The church never has, never will be given the power of kings. We have not been given the sword. The church has been given the power of the gospel and the keys of the kingdom, the ability to bring people into God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and to shut them out. And for us to mistake that always, always causes problems. We are called in the New Testament sojourners and exiles over and over again after the model of the Israelites who were overtaken by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. and and taken in exile to live in foreign cities where they lived as foreigners in these pagan cities, what we would call today resident aliens. That's where they lived and died. They worked and played. They formed relationships. (sighs) They had careers. They built houses. They planted vineyards. They lived their whole lives there in this place under these hostile earthly powers, and yet they thrived in it. And then Solomon says, a promise. This is where he goes one better from Dreher. He says that they were reason that those Israelites were able to do it, and the same reason that we, as sojourners and exiles, as resident aliens, in the New Covenant age, are able to do it, how we're able to survive in these hostile environments or coming hostile environments is because we know that this is not our home. This is not, our last, this is not the last stop on the train. We are passengers. We are passing through. We are looking for something better, something the Bible, the Bible calls the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God a better country that is a heavenly one and so the big idea the thesis the one thing that the holy spirit wants us to understand through the teaching of solomon in this passage is this that we should be humble under earthly power because this world is not our home we can be humble under earthly power because this earth this world is not our home And now let's break that down in two parts. The first, we should be humble under earthly powers. Look at verses 8, chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? In the, in the early medieval church, there was a crisis going back and forth about who had the power. Ultimately, was it the, was it the church or the empire? Was it the pope or was it the emperor? Who ultimately got to tell the other guy what to do? And that dispute was more or less effectively settled in January of 1077 in the winter when Pope Gregory VII made King Henry Fourth sit outside his castle barefoot in sackcloth uh, <laughs> for three days in the snow, begging for forgiveness for the excommunication that had been put on him for being so bold as to declare that he didn't have the right to assign bishops and to assign ecclesiastical or offices within the church. And so that was a great moment, or a a great blunder in church history, really. But from that day, and for a long time afterwards, the question was settled. The pope, or the the empire, the emperor, or the emperor took his orders from the pope, not what, uh, what Solomon is saying here. And that lasted a long time. It fell apart in Europe a lot faster than it fell apart in the United States. But all the way up into the 1980s, all the way to the 80s, a thousand years later, almost a thousand years, just two years shy, 1977, the popes of the American church, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and others started the moral majority to make the emperor do what we say. we would make them do our bidding, uh, and it didn't go as well for them as it did for Gregory VII, unfortunately. As Rod Dreyer points out through this whole book, that didn't work, <laughs> and now the shoe is on the other foot, and so Solomon here gives us, in our context, the wake-up call, and the wake-up call is this, welcome to the mainstream of Christian history, We exist under an unsympathetic at best and hostile government power at worst. We cannot force the American polis to sit outside in the snow for three days. They're not going to do it. And so the better and the sooner we recognize that, for us, the better. And now the question that everyone's trying to ask with these books coming out, Benedict Option, Strangers in a Strange Land, is since that's true, what do we do? How are we going to live in this new world? And Dreyer, in mean, Benedict option, his idea is that we circle the wagons, where we retreat into these Christian communities. Um, and we do so though while we're still serving serving the people around us. He makes this is a great quote. I posted it today and you might have seen it. He says this the first Christians gained converts, not because of their arguments were better than those of the pagans, but because people saw in them and in their communities something good and beautiful, and they wanted it. And this, recognizing that beauty first, led them into the truth, opened their minds to accept the possibility that the gospel was truth. And I think that's what Dreher is trying to say in this whole book. Whether he's going overboard or not, maybe he's too isolationist, there's another option the Bible gives us, another option called the Daniel option. That uh, the reason that we're called sojourners and exiles in the New Testament is after those Israelite captives and Daniel, the book of Daniel, gives us this picture of one of the the leading Israelite royal family who is taken into captivity and put in this hostile environment made to serve these pagan kings and yet he does it from a sense of wanting to bless the community around him, to not try to tell everybody what to do, but to be a blessed, use his gifts and his, his spiritual gifts, his natural gifts, to bless that community, and there in, in through that to glorify the name of God. It says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah calls this out. This, more than anything else, is really our mandate as New Testament Christians as we think about relating to culture. Jeremiah says this. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The prophets were saying, Any day now, God's going to bring us home. We don't have to exist here as exiles. We don't have to worry about being sojourners. We just need to just wait. In another week, the Lord will deliver us and bring us back to Jerusalem. All the pundits. And, and it wasn't true. They were there for 70 years. This has more to do with us than other verses about the glory of the kingdom of Israel. This this is more about us. We're exiles in the land and we are called to live in it and to be a part of it and to be a blessing to it as much as we can, to pray for it, to pray for its blessing. There's limits when it comes to real religious issues. Daniel, given a chance between praying three times a day or being thrown into a pit of lions, he chose lions. Lions. Where's that line? Where does it line go across religious conscience? Where does it become something that we can't do? That's a super hard question to ask and and a harder question to answer way beyond the scope of this sermon. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. If someone forces you to bake a wedding cake, do you not do it to not participate and give a witness in love or if someone forces you to bake a wedding cake, do you bake for them too? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And I bet it's probably different in a lot of cases. It's wisdom issues. So yes, there's things we can do, things we can't do. But what we always can do is be a blessing to the city and stop these shenanigans of trying to make them sit out in the snow and do our bidding. Because it doesn't, it's not working. But we can be a blessing to the city. And, but remarkably, that's not the main thing that this is about. There's a subtle shift that happens right here at this point in the dialogue, and the shift, the underneath reality, that's not even mentioned, but what we know is that Solomon, who's writing this, is the king. He does get to tell the king what to do, because <laughs> he's the king. So, this advice that he's giving. To him, he's saying, even though I am king, there's also all these other earthly powers that I am subject to. There's things that nobody gets out from underneath. There are things that we are all all subject to. For one, there's four of them. We are all king or not king under the power of time and providence, God's good providence. We are time blind in our being. We do not know what's going to happen in the future, and that is a handicap that we have part of the heaviness that's on mankind. And we are subject to God's good providence. God is God is the one who's who can do whatever He pleases and bring about all that He has brought is going to bring about. The second thing, we are all under the power of death. King or not King, eventually something is going to make it real. Your health is going to fail in one way or another someday, everybody in this room. Even if we're healthy now, what we're talking about is a, is, a, is a 30, 40 year reprieve. At one point in time, everyone will lose, well, we all we don't, none of us have the power to retain our spirit as it is. We retain our spirit because God retains it in us. But at one, some point in time, we will lose control to the power of death. He says the third thing, is, is war. There's no discharge in war. This is the ravages of war. In the ancient Near East, war came to you, like it or not. We've been very blessed in our, in the, the era that we've grown up in that there's never, that's not been war here in our, on our land. But that is rare. In the ancient Near East, your city would be overtaken. Siege works would be built around your city. You would starve to death. You would run out of water and the ravages of war would come upon you and no one, no one was exempt from that. It may not happen to you, but it happened certainly plenty of times to most people. And finally, all of us are subject of the, what he says, the uh, the wickedness. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it, meaning that the power of sin to overtake and enslave men and to enslave us in sin overtakes everyone, king or not king. No one escapes these things. And you know what, is, what makes it even heavier is, 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 is what it, if we remember what it says in Ecclesiastes 3, when it said that for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Some of that same language is in this passage. And in that passage, in Ecclesiastes 3, there was a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, build up, seek, lose, love, hate, war, peace. There's all this dichotomy of good things and awful things that happen on the earth. And what we found out at the end of that passage was that these aren't just things that happen These are things that God ordains to happen for our good. Here's here's another one along those same lines. I love this passage because it challenges our image of God so much. This is Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Why? Why would God do that? Not just permit them, but ordain these things. Why would he do that? Is he cruel? Well, the answer is point two. Because this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Look at verses five and six. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. But there is a time and way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The short answer to why God does these things, why he would allow these things, why he would ordain these things, the short answer is mercy. It is God's mercy to us. It's both God's kindness, it's God's severity, and it's God's purpose in it is to let us know that we are mortal and that this world is not our home, that we cannot make a paradise here and that one day we will usher into the next world. And his desire is that we usher into it under the righteousness of Jesus into new and beautiful life. Tucked right in the middle of this whole passage is this line where it says, for there is uh, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. What is a wise heart? Answer? Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord, that's Hebrew epistemology, How do we know what is good, what is not good? The first thing we must do is have a reverent awe for God and a desire to follow Him in His commands and to trust in a belief that His commands for us are good. And to know who God is, that He has revealed Himself to us. And also, just as important, to know what He has done for us. Second thing What is the proper season or what is the proper time? The answer, Hebrews 3, quoting Psalm 95, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, this time, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. We are in the wilderness. Today is the day of salvation. The proper time and the proper season is now. And finally, what is the just way and the right way, which means really, in this context, it's a word that means the right way to to believe and to act, the right way to think about something and then act upon it. It's almost the same question when we say it like that, what's the right way to believe and act? It's almost the same question that all the Pharisees asked Peter on the day of Pentecost when they were cut to the heart over what Peter had just proclaimed to them about Jesus being the Messiah. And Peter answers them when they say, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the age to come. And when we receive it, what that means is that we have been put in touch with, we have been connected with a better world. That we have been given assurance by God that this world is no longer our home. The corruption of it, the sadness of it, the anxiety of it, the oppression of it. We don't belong here anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we have been given the Spirit we have already been transported and assured that we have a place in a better world. Colossians 1 says we have, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the domain of political power, from the domain of death, from the domain of temporal blindness, from the domain of war, from the domain of wickedness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen? So what does this all mean for us? In conclusion, it means this, that if you belong to Jesus, for those, for us, for us, for God's people, for those who have been given the Holy Spirit, it means that the power of earthly kings is only as powerful as as they are on the earth. It is as temporary as they are. Because we belong to an eternal kingdom where the word of King Jesus is supreme. And because King Jesus does whatever he pleases, amen, that means that King Jesus has chosen to adopt you as his son or as his daughter. And he's assured you that you are part of the new kingdom. and that we will reign with Christ forever. It means that time and providence are on our side, that God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, his ability to see the future, and his all-powerfulness are working on our behalf. So even if it looks bad right now, we know that even these bad things, God is working for the good. He promises that all these things will work to the good for those who love Christ, who have been called according to his purpose. If you have the spirit, we have the spirit. Those are two things are true of us. It means that we do have power over death. In Solomon's categories, he's leaving out one man who did have the power to retain his spirit, who did have the power over death, and he used that power to voluntarily lay down his life and then take it back up again so that he might win for us our justification, our right standing before God. And he has given that to us as a gift. And it means that we have been given freedom from the wickedness that ensnares all of mankind. Even though we are still sinners, we have been given the righteousness of Christ so that when God sees us, He sees us through Jesus so that he sees us as perfect and holy, able to stand before him in perfect love. And brothers and sisters, that will never change. We will have that forever and someday we'll hear that trumpet sound and we will be changed and our bodies will be changed, we'll be released from the very presence of sin the presence of darkness, the presence of war, the presence of wickedness, and we will reign with Christ forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the wonder and the beauty and the astonishing promises that you give us in your word. You are truly a good, good father to us, and we love you so much, and we're so grateful. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember in our times of doubt, in our times of frustration, in our times of of self-condemnation, Lord, when our hearts condemn us for our sin, that you are greater than our hearts and that your grace is greater than our sin and that your mercy is greater than our rebellion and that your power is greater than our power and our weakness that seeks to run and hide. Lord, help us to not run, help us to come to you and remember that you have have made us your own and that it is your doing. We are your children by your perfect and holy will. And we ask only, Lord, that you would help us to glorify your name in all we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.